welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to welcome Alex Walter. Alex is the Chief Innovation Officer at the A3J Group in Tampa, Florida, which is a company he founded to address the need for innovative software solutions within the enterprise asset management industry. Alex brings over 18 years of experience in business consulting in various industries, including life sciences, oil and gas, water and waste management, education, and and government facilities. Alex's previous roles include Senior Vice President and Vice President of Software Development and Products at EDI. He has a BS in Applied Mathematics and Economics at Brown University, and he spends his free time running half marathons and waiting for better days for the New York Jets. Alex Walter, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Please don't hold that New York Jets thing against me. <laughs> we won't. You've, I think you've got a little more waiting to, to, to do, to be honest with you. Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, chat with you today. Alex, I think most of our listeners are already familiar with the concept of preventative maintenance, and they probably understand why preventative maintenance is better than you know, waiting until equipment actually breaks down. But they may not have heard of condition-based maintenance or condition-based monitoring. Can you explain what a condition-based approach is and why this is an improvement over traditional maintenance programs? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about traditional maintenance programs, um, a lot of times we're talking about time-based maintenance, which is when we're saying, you know, go do this prescribed maintenance routine because a certain amount of time has passed since we last did this maintenance. So you're, you know, familiar with with those types of routines, like every three months, kind, right? you know, an annual schedule. Exactly. We do this kind of maintenance. So the condition-based maintenance says, you know, we're not going to do this uh, based on the elapsed amount of time, we're actually going to do this when we see some condition of the equipment arise. And that condition could be some leading indicator of failure or uh, could be that you know we have some wear and tear down to a certain level. Really could be any condition, but it's not based on the calendar. So uh, you know, I, I heard Terry O'Hanlon from reliabilityweb.com speak recently about condition-based maintenance. And he asked the question, what would you say to your doctor if she prescribed a heart transplant on your 60th birthday without running any tests prior to making the decision? And I thought that was great, right? It's yeah, like, you know, no, 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 I think we should hold off on this until I have some indicator that I have, you know, a problem, right? Rather than just, you know, you're 60 years old, let's right. go do this. Um, so that was a great example of, you know, hey, maybe we can be a little bit smarter about this because uh, a lot of maintenance is intrusive. So um, just by nature, uh, a lot of the failures that we see in equipment, uh, a lot of it was just caused by change. Right. So, um, you know, the, the less we can change or not, not even necessarily the less we can change, but the more we can make it. Uh, to where the change is needing to happen. Um, failure is either imminent or projected on some timeline. And that's where we want to be um, 
on that curve. Alex, why do you, why do you think we got into this uh, this pattern of doing only scheduled maintenance? I mean, uh, is this? I, I guess I'm trying to understand how this got started historically. You know, do, do you have any opinion about that? Well, so reactive maintenance is costly, right? So uh, I think studies have shown that about uh, you're looking at seven to nine times the cost of doing a reactive work order versus a proactive work wow. order. Um, so when you factor in things like, you know, lead time for parts and, you know, having to have rush orders for parts to get in, when you factor in, you know, calling out after hours or, or overtime type work, it's really expensive. It's hard to plan. It's hard to predict. And so companies have said, Hey, how can we get to a more organized, planned, uh, scheduled, and, and so the idea of proactive maintenance is very attractive. So how do we get out ahead of that? Is well, you know, uh, like like your vehicle, right? So you want to change the oil every so often because the last thing you want to do is be stranded on the side of the road with a broken down sure. vehicle. So rather than rather than take that chance, what we're going to do is we're going to go every so often. And replace the oil and 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 do a, a, a prescribed maintenance routine on that on that vehicle. So um, I, we got to the point of doing time-based maintenance because it's it's simple, it's easy, yeah. and it's it, the, you, there's a real savings there. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying, and and you can schedule, uh, you know, taking your equipment down uh, when it's convenient for you. As opposed to, uh, but I think what your point is that uh, when you stick to a schedule like that, you may be uh, spending more money than you need to. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a useful comparison here. Um, some people belong to a shave club where they get you know razor blades sent to them on a regular basis, and I sometimes wonder, you know, how long do, do razor blades actually last? I mean, you know, do you really need to replace them as often as as you might think? as these folks would make you believe. Absolutely. If there was some way we could measure, um, you know, the, the sharpness of the yeah. blade and when it gets to a certain dullness, say, okay, you know, it's, it's time to, to replace that blade. So uh, on a more macro level, that's exactly where we're getting at with condition-based maintenance, right? Is um, so we've gotten smarter, Doing more proactive maintenance than reactive has has helped a lot of organizations become more controlled, organized, and cost effective. But there's a there, there's a next level uh, that I see a lot of companies trying to get to nowadays, uh, and that is you know, moving away from time based maintenance right. to more usage and condition. Uh, and ultimately predictive right. maintenance. Wow, that'd be something. Can you can you give an example of how condition-based monitoring has been used to achieve some real uh, savings? Yeah, absolutely. So the real trick to establishing a, a condition-based maintenance strategy is to identify leading indicators of failure for your equipment and then pairing that with technology that can identify and even and quantify those indicators. So you're talking about things like vibration, temperature, pressure, wear and tear, those kind of things. So uh, a good example that that 
um, I was part of a couple years ago was a, a large university has a steam system with a large population of steam traps. So uh, they they went out and, and did a bunch of research and found studies from the U.S. Department of Energy that um, 15 to 30%-ish of steam traps will be in a failed state after three to five years of just runtime. Okay. Uh, and that 20% of steam is lost via leaking steam traps. So uh, the, the study actually said that, you know, having a more proactive approach to replacing these steam traps can save uh, quite a bit of that steam loss, which results in big time savings for uh, any organization who implements that type of program. Sure, so. That makes sense. We went out to establish this program. So previously, they had uh, you know time-based maintenance. So every three to five years, uh, they would go and just you know replace all their steam traps. Um, and you know they they really wanted to implement a program that um, instead of just blanket, we're going to go replace all these traps after a certain amount of time. Let's go ahead and measure to see whether it needs it, and then we'll, we'll take the appropriate action from there. So the, the trick was, you know, how do, again, how do we identify that, that leading indicator of failure? And then, you know, how do we best uh, implement this kind of program? Sure. So what we did was we actually outfitted their uh, technicians with two new pieces of equipment. Uh, one was uh, an infrared uh, scanner, and the other was a, a mobile device that could communicate back to their enterprise asset management system. Uh, so the infrared device was used to measure the the state of of the steam trap. So how much um, steam or, or you know the heat coming off of the steam trap uh, is anything leaking? Is it cold, or is it just not blowing at all? Uh, versus um, the the mobile device which would allow them to communicate the state of that steam trap back to the enterprise asset management system so once a quarter the technician would go out and and take readings on all the different steam traps record all those readings on the mobile device and send it back to the enterprise asset management system based on the results of those readings what would happen is a, an additional work order would get kicked off if that steam trap needed to be replaced. And so rather than just blanket sort of replace these steam traps every three to five years, um, we're re replacing them when they're needed uh, in a in a cost effective way um, as far as you know the the time spent collecting this information. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it seems it seems pretty clear. I mean that uh, you're you're replacing them when they're needed. Uh, you're not running the risk of replacing them before they need to be replaced, which is probably you know adding a lot of cost on that end. But you're also replacing them. You're not letting them continue to operate uh, when they should be replaced. So there's cost savings on that end as well. Absolutely, and just the the amount of uh, savings that can be realized just by keeping more of that heat. Um, you know, if you're only checking these things and replacing them every three to five years, how long has this one steam trap not been performing the way it's supposed to be performing? And how much are you missing out on just based on that alone? 
Good point. Right. You're you're losing a whole bunch of potential um, energy and capability there. So good point. I, I'm I'm just curious. Do they do any? Um, um, what am I trying to say? Teardowns or any analysis of the traps that they remove as a way of maybe improving the uh, frequency of these checks? Absolutely. So that was another benefit was they were able to, I I mean, they were doing this before, uh, but when they're able to identify different rates of failure for these, they they can actually take the, the ones that are failing and send them off for analysis. Why is this one failing? Is it a, is it a product of the environment that they're installed in or is it something uh, innate to the device itself? Um, all of that. Yeah. Um, Alex, this seems pretty, pretty obvious to me. What are some of the barriers to implementing this kind of condition-based monitoring? And do you have any suggestions on how to overcome those barriers? Yeah. So the biggest thing obviously is, is identifying those leading indicators of failure and then measuring them, right? So, um, you know, if, if we can say um, the amount of run hours, l- instead of using a, a calendar, let's just say we want to uh, measure the usage of the equipment uh, and say, you know, let's say we do uh, an annual pump maintenance, uh, but rather than do it mm-hmm. annually, we'll do it off of. Um, you know, 2,000 hours of runtime or, or something like that. Um, just measuring the runtime and being able to capture that and trigger a maintenance event off of that is something that organizations have to achieve. Uh, and a lot of organizations already have SCADA systems uh, or control systems that can report this, uh, but Older systems uh, might need to be retrofitted, and there's a cost associated with that. So, uh, I I think the the cost of retrofitting older equipment with more modern technology is one, and then um, the other is just an organization's ability to identify those indicators of failure. Uh, I, I see a lot of um, debate, discussion, and and most organizations really get more bang for the buck when they start small uh, and, and really build up this program over time rather than trying to, um, you know, do some, some big bang type of implementation. No, I think that's a really good point. We need to understand what the early indicators are or what the, what the, what we should be measuring. Right. Because if you're triggering off of something that's uh, that you think is a leading indicator of failure, but isn't, now you could be putting yourself um, potentially more in harm's way um, than you were originally. Alex, I want to come back to something you were talking about before. You've, you've been a big proponent of mobile services as kind of the next step in the evolution of uh, enterprise asset management. Could, could you give us some examples of how mobile solutions can have a positive impact on the organization and specifically how those solutions can help with EAM? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say number one is it's very important that you trust the information that is coming out of your enterprise asset management system. The data that's in that system is really what's helping you drive objectives and justify um, initiatives. 
it's it's everything to you to be able to see and and interact and trust that the data in there is correct so when i look at mobility i look at closing the gap between when the work is performed and when the information that happened on that maintenance event is recorded in the enterprise asset management system. The the closer you can get to those two things happening at the same time, the more accurate the data is going to be. If I'm standing there in front of the equipment and I notice something, I want to be able to record it right there. If I write it on a piece of paper or try and remember it for later, what gets into that system right. may not be uh, as accurate as if you would have done it in, in real time. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's, that's number one, right? Um, number two is you'd be surprised how many organizations that I've been to um, that used a paper-based system. So you come in the morning, you hand your stack of paperwork orders out to the technicians. They go out for the day, they come back. And at the end of the day, they all get back an hour early so they can stand in line and wait to sit down at the two desktop computers that are available to them at the end of the shift, oh right? So, you know, our our technicians, uh, they, they're passionate about the equipment. They're passionate about, you know, keeping it running. And, that, and, and the more time that they can spend out, you know, doing what they're good at and what they're passionate about, the better it is for everybody. Um, and it's a big time saver uh, in doing so. And, you know, a lot of uh, companies look at that possibly as, you know, time saver equals cost savings. But it's almost the way I like to look at it is time saver equals opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to do more condition-based maintenance stuff. It's the opportunity to do, to get organized and do more proactive things. So um, I would say, you know, efficiency, productivity, wrench time would be number two. Uh, thirdly, I would say compliance is a big factor. So we work in a lot of very regulated environments um, and having standard operating procedures right in front of you at your fingertips while you're doing the maintenance and, and having actually like step-by-step -step checklists that you can go through is a huge win. Uh, I've seen a lot of places that have folks that you know, have been doing the same thing for 30 years, right? And they, I know how to do this equipment. I know I'm supposed to read this procedure and I probably have read the procedure, but when I get out to do the equipment, um, I'm going to do it the way I've always done it because, you know, I, uh, maybe I forgot or that's just, I, I know this equipment like the back of my hand and, right. you know, that's what I'm going to do. But Again, having the mobile solution in place has the ability to push those standard operating procedures right to the device, to the device, right in front of the user as they're doing the work. So, for compliance and safety purposes, it, it's a win. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it, it makes sense to do that while you're actually at the 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 the, the location, you know, at the site of failure or the site of concern, wherever the equipment is, you know, instead of having to run sure. back, like you said, run, run back to an office. Yeah. And, you know, being able to look up parts while you're standing right there. Hey, I, I, I see this problem. I think I need this part. Do we have it? I don't know. Let's look it up. Um, being able to see the history. Um, hey, this thing is failing in this way. Has it failed in this way before? And what did we do back then to solve it? Um, so those types of things just uh, make it a better experience for 
um, the technicians who are servicing the equipment. Well, like you said, it's a huge time savings that allows them to tap into a knowledge base, you know, perhaps that can help uh, address the issue. Uh, so, Alex, for our listeners who want to take the next step, what's what's the best way for an organization to get started with uh, mobile services to support uh, EAM? What are your recommendations? Well, I would say number one would be don't forget about the users. <laughs> These people, <laughs> right? They're they're you know a lot of them uh, are very computer savvy. Uh, some of them may not be, and they have different uh, levels of. Uh, you know, understanding when it comes to technology and devices. So keep all of that in mind. Um, pick a solution that is that you can tailor to meet your maintenance processes. Um, you know, I've I've seen a lot of organizations try and fit what they do to the software, and really the software should be supporting what you do as a maintenance organization. So so make sure that that the users are taken care of. And also they're carrying a new tool in their tool belt, right? So a mobile device they have to carry around, make sure that it, it fit the form factor fits, you know, them and, and, you know, depending on what type of work they do, um, obviously the more screen real estate, typically the better, but, you know, make sure it, it fits for them and, and how they work as well. Good point. Uh, and then lastly, I would say, you know, have a plan for security control and deployment of updates, those types of things, work with the, the IT departments uh, to make sure that, that these devices are secure. That's great. Alex, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a joy. Thank you. That was Alex Walter. Chief Innovation Officer at the A3J Group in Tampa, Florida. To learn more, you can go to a3jgroup.com. And also, please check out the Fluke line of connected reliability products. You can see that lineup at uh, ascendoreliability.com slash go slash fluke. That's ascendoreliability.com, A-C-C-E-N-D-O, reliability.com slash go slash fluke. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks a lot for joining us.